That's what we read here from Mark 5, verse 21 onwards. Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be healed, and she will live. So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for twelve years, and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if, I only may touch, if, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid, only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James and John, the brother of James. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult, and those who wept and wailed loudly. When he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child who were with him, and entered where the child was laying. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kumi, which is translated, Little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was twelve years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it, and said that something should be given to her to eat. Let's pray. Lord God, as we continue through Mark's gospel and we see more of the incredible power of Christ on display, we pray that we would not approach this as something that we have read many times before but may we approach it as something which is exciting and alive before us and may your spirit grant us a willingness to learn what you would teach us we ask this in Christ's name amen so over the events of the last two Sundays our sermons working through Mark's gospel perhaps we approach this section of Mark's gospel wondering How could Jesus top the things that he has just done? He has calmed a storm with words. He has shown his absolute superiority and power over a legion of demons. And both of these demonstrations of his divinity were absolutely astounding. So maybe we're wondering, what more could Jesus do? How could he make himself any more compelling for us to believe in? 
At the end of last week's reading, uh, the people over in the Gerasene region had asked Jesus to leave. They'd seen what he did with this legion of demons and this now formerly demon-possessed man. And I realize I missed a trick last week. I could have said the word demoniac, someone who is possessed by a demon. It's a fun word to say. I missed it. But this demoniac is no longer a demoniac sitting at the feet of Jesus when they come along. They were scared of him, the people who came. They were fearful. Asked Jesus to leave. So he, even though he probably hadn't been there long, Jesus got back into the boat and crossed over to the more Jewish regions where he had been before, back into Israelite lands. Maybe we're going, well, that was a waste of a trip. But Jesus had shown to people his power and authority. He had shown the compelling nature of himself and had even released the first missionary that he did to the people outside of Israel. It was not a wasted trip. But now Jesus, as we get to Mark 5.21, has returned to Israelite lands. And when he and his disciples made land, they were flooded by a, a great multitude of people, this massive crowd just flocking around him. You might remember me saying a few times throughout this series that there are points in Mark's gospel where intense popularity are shown. There are moments in Mark's gospel where intense, intense opposition to Jesus are shown. This is one of those times of intense popularity. People are flooding to hear him and to see him. People are coming to find out more, to see more. What more does Jesus have in store for us? And we know that there's been more than just the average person come along. In verse 22 today, among all of this crowd... There is an important person singled out. Normally, Mark, when we've seen important people coming to to Jesus, they've been coming from a power base, whether that be the Pharisees, although we do need to be careful because I think, as we see with Nicodemus, there are probably some genuinely interested Pharisees. But on the whole, when the Pharisees come onto the scene, they were trying to oppose Jesus. Uh, The scribes were in the same boat. Uh, The Herodians as well, they've come with traps, they've come with tricks, trying to discredit Christ publicly. So verse 22, though, we have this man who we find out his name is Jairus, who is one of the leaders of the local synagogue. And what happens with Jairus turns a pattern of powerful people coming to Jesus on its head. This guy doesn't come to Jesus threatened by Jesus. He comes to Jesus earnestly with a desire, with a request that is strong on his heart. He doesn't come along telling the crowds to calm down, get back to business and remember to get to the synagogue on the Sabbath because we want to see you there. And he comes along and falls down at Jesus' feet. This is a powerful, influential man adding credibility to Jesus' words through his actions. He comes to Christ and in the crowd he is singled out because of how incredibly humble what he does is. This is a ruler of the synagogue. A man who had influence, a man who had power, a man who could call healers to his family to look after them. A man who in a career path mindset could very easily be threatened by Jesus. But Jairus comes and he falls down at Jesus' feet. 
he falls down at Jesus' feet and he tells him about his little girl who is unwell to the point of being on death's door. Jesus, can you please heal her? I know that if you just lay your hands on her, she will be healed. It's an astounding, astounding expression of faith from someone who could have very easily thought that they had the ability and the social clout to figure things out for themselves. He comes to Jesus. So we get to verse 24, where Jesus goes with Jairus and the crowd followed after Jesus. Now note the way Mark words that in verse 24. They didn't follow Jairus, they followed him, that is that is Jesus. The life of the little girl on death's door is about to be saved is where our minds are going. It's a good thing that's about to happen. It's an amazing thing that's about to happen. But then we leave Jairus there in verse 24 and we don't return to what's happening with him and his daughter until verse 35. And there's something that happens which many people, I'll assume many people who are right there at the time, would have thought was nothing more than a rude interruption. The perceived rude interruption was this woman who had had a flow of blood for 12 years. Now, of all the people in the crowd, there were two people singled out for us by Mark in this account. There was a ruler of the synagogue, a holy man, a respected man, a trusted man, a welcomed man, and this woman who would have been a social outcast. We want nothing to do with her. These are the two people that Mark single out for us of everyone in this crowd. And this woman we read, she has suffered many things at the hands of physicians. She has spent all of her money. There has been no reprieve. Her symptoms have gotten worse and worse over that time. This is a woman who you can imagine has not much hope of ever having a quality life. There are so many things that she wouldn't be able to enjoy while this health issue continues. And while it's a specifically isolated health issue in, the, in a physical sense, its consequences are not small. This would affect every aspect of her life. In the commentary written by Jamison, Fawcett and Brown, they say this woman is one who is pitiable and in many ways is an emblem of the whole human race. Our sins might seem small and specific to a narrow area, but unless it's dealt with, it makes us unable to enjoy true and full fellowship with God, with our church family, and has a detrimental impact on every part of our lives. The woman clearly felt the physical distress of this. The woman felt both the physical and the spiritual distress, the reality of what our sin, when untreated, does to us in a spiritual sense. It is a sad situation. This woman truly is pitiable. For 12 years which, as we read at the end, they're the same age as a little girl. For 12 years, 
This woman has suffered and gotten worse. I've spoken to people who have had ongoing health issues for more than a decade. I'm sure many of you have had these sorts of conversations. And often there is a point that's reached. I'm not referring to anyone here, but maybe we can relate to this if we have chronic ongoing health issues. A point can be reached where hope of a cure just seems unrealistic. The physical toll becomes an emotional toll. It becomes a mental toll. And it becomes a spiritual toll. I've spoken to people who say that they can still love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind and strength despite their chronic injuries and struggles with health. But there's a sense of guilt that their ability to love the Lord their God is diminished because of these things. Hope seems to fade. A sad acceptance of continual pain and suffering takes over. I think this woman would have been there. Perhaps she had given up all hope and this was quite likely a last-ditch effort. Verse 27 shows us that she didn't even have the confidence in herself to talk to Jesus. Didn't have the confidence to talk to Jesus like Jairus had done when he asked for healing for his daughter. But despite that, there is this beautiful nugget of faith that Jesus can heal. Even if it's just touching the corner of his garment, the corner of his cloak... Jesus can heal. So that's what she does. Now, we concluded verse 24 with the crowds following Jesus. And I deliberately omitted the words there that they thronged him until we got to this point here. They were not just following him like two neat rows like you'd see in school. It's a messy press of bodies all around Jesus. This woman touches a corner of Jesus' cloak and Jesus knew that the power to heal had gone out of him. He knew what this woman had done. He knew what this woman who would have been considered unclean and had limited at best access to the synagogue and the temple has dared to touch him, a teacher and a holy man, but he is not indignant. He does ask though, who touched me? You see the disciples' response in here. Verse 31 Look around you. You really think we can single out one person? You're asking who touched you? Anyone here could have touched you. Any of a hundred people could have done it. And you really want to know which single person touched you? I always get the attitude, can we just keep going? Can we just keep moving? Jesus, there are people out there who don't like you. There are people out there plotting to destroy you. If we can get to Jairus' house quickly enough and we can save his daughter, our street cred goes through the roof. How good would that be? Can we just keep moving seems to be the attitude. But this woman comes forward 
And Jesus looked at her with fear and in trembling she tells him everything. It seems that nothing is withheld in what she tells to Jesus. Perhaps while she's talking, the disciples are looking at the sundials going, let's just move this along a little bit. It might be small, but there is a very, very real faith that this woman has. Again, Jesus was not indignant that this had happened. He tells her that her faith had made her well to go in peace, now healed of this affliction. This is a beautiful scene where doors and quality of life and spiritual reconnection with God and his people are opening up for this woman. It's a beautiful scene we get to in verse 34, but it all threatens to come crashing down very quickly when we get to verse 35. Verse 35, as I said, is where we recommence with Jairus and his daughter. And it's not a happy recommencement of, of this request for healing. People came from Jairus' house while Jesus was still talking to the now healed woman. And they came and told Jairus that his daughter has died. Don't, don't bother Jesus anymore, she's dead. She's gone. It is far from a happy recommencement of what's happening with Jairus and his daughter. And you can imagine the flurry of questions going through people's heads. What if that unclean woman had just waited? Twelve years and she couldn't wait just a little bit longer? Why didn't the disciples just try and move the crowd out of the way and just push through to Jairus' house to speed it up, have some sort of crowd control in place so we could have, could have done the thing we consider to be the important thing here? And those questions come with the immediate weight of grief that a child has died. Tragedy has struck. Jairus, don't, don't bother Jesus anymore. He can't do anything. Leave him alone. Go home. Grieve is basically what the servants tell Jairus. But it's not over. It's not over. Jesus can do more more even than the most hopeful person there could have hoped for. He tells them, don't be afraid, only believe. He then takes Peter and James and John, the the inner circle among his disciples, with him to Jairus' house. And and people there were weeping and they were wailing. It's It's a chaotic scene that we come into in verse 38. A tumult is the word used there in the New King James. Now, it might seem weird to us that this, this show of grief is so open because that's not how, how we do it as Australians, do we? It's a stiff upper lip type attitude. But in the, in the Middle East, it's common even today, as it was then, for people to wail and to mourn and to, to openly weep like this to the point where there were some whose employment were as professional weepers and wailers.
Jesus tells them not to weep because the child is not dead, she's asleep. And it's probably this quick change of wailing to laughing which indicates that Jairus' household had organised for some of these professional wailers to be present. Maybe it's disbelief for some, maybe it's an attitude of some that they're not, their hearts aren't in it, that it's not it's the right thing to do at the time in the culture to do this grieving thing like this. But they quickly go from, from weeping and wailing to, to laughter at Jesus. Laughing at him. He says the child's not dead, she's asleep, and they laugh, they mock. But Jesus is still not deterred. He endured their ridicule. He entered the room with Jairus and we'll call her Mrs. Jairus. He took the child's hand, this small, cold, 12-year-old hand, told her to rise. She did and she walked. This is a resurrection. Not an eternal one, but this is resurrection from the dead. And you go, that's the main thing, but Jesus' care is seen in an even more beautiful moment than just this. He even tells them, give her something to eat. It's just this beautiful little addition which shows the depth of Christ's care. This is resurrection from the dead. Even death is not an obstruction to Jesus' power and authority. God is mighty indeed. And Jesus tells, people, tells the people in the room with him, don't tell people what's happened, why his time had not yet come. But people would know, word got out, the compellingness of Christ, it grew. Now some people take what we've read here today, from Mark 5, 21 through to 43, in a few different ways. A common and very sad misunderstanding of this passage is some people will say we shouldn't go to doctors. Just believe, don't be afraid, everything will be fine. We will prosper and we will thrive if we only believe. There are churches today built around that teaching. But is that really what we see here today? We absolutely should take everything to God first and foremost. But if God has blessed us with medical care, we shouldn't ignore it. We don't see that here. We do see God do greater things than any doctor, nurse, physio, occupational therapist here on earth could do. Uh, we, we do see that in all things, even in the face of someone dying, we should hold to our belief in God and trust him in all circumstances. But we have to read a lot into this passage to say that Christians should not seek out medical attention. But again, it is important that belief is held on to because there is no limit to God working his good. He can do, he does do, and he will do great and mighty things. So we must remember that. And we must remember the healing that he offers. We must remember that Jesus did all of these things, but where was he going? He was going to the cross. This is all part of his journey to the cross, 
that he might die there, be hung up there, similar to what happened with those snakes that Moses put up in the Old Testament, that he might be the permanent eternal cure for sin. That is a healing that we all needed. That is a healing that many today still need. A belief in God should not be deterred by anything, not even death, is a massive thing we take out of this. But if that's the only lesson we take out of this, we perhaps become reactionary people. We wait for things to happen and then we, then we go to God. Matthew Henry's commentary really helpfully reminds us how this passage relates to Deuteronomy chapter 6, particularly verse 7. That we should do good, not just in the house, but when we walk by the way. Jesus shows us what that looks like here. Jesus demonstrated that for us right here in what we've been looking for. When he walked by the way, an opportunity for good arose and he took it. It might not have been the most popular thing that he'd done. You can imagine the blame that the servants in Jairus' household had in their eyes when they came and found Jesus healing somebody else instead of their prominent master's daughter. Why did you waste your time there? But Jesus did good on the way. How many times do we do that? When we were taking Zara home from the hospital for the first time. A few days after she'd been born and there was a few dramas, we'd been there longer than we wanted to be there. We just wanted to go home. We really wanted to go home. We got back to our car in the, uh, the multi-storey park at the Royal Brisbane Women's Hospital. And there was a car parked behind us in the road with a flat battery. They asked us if they had the jump leads ready to go. They asked us if they could get a bit of a jump from us. Could we help? We wanted to go home. We just wanted to take our little girl home to finally be at home together as a family. Now, this is absolutely nothing compared to what Jesus went through. Don't think I'm putting this on a high pedestal. But we agreed. It's not a big thing. But even in that opportunity of just moving the car out, we blocked up both lanes in the parking. I think there were about 25 cars banked up, so we really left an impression at the hospital. Even that, just talking to this fellow, just briefly, we could share the gospel. Why'd you stop? He reckons that at least 10 people had driven past pretending they couldn't see his car in the road there. As a drive around it, you're going to see it. 10 people had driven past without stopping, and it was an opportunity to share about God's love, about God, and God's command for Christians to love those around them. Turns out this guy was a Christian, which was pretty cool. If he hadn't been, he would have heard those life-saving words of the gospel. Now, again, this is nothing on what Jesus did. But we do have those chances to do good on the way, don't we? And sadly, while that was an opportunity I took, there are plenty that I've missed. And we need to keep coming back to the example of Christ. He could have ignored the unclean woman. 
Old Testament law allows me to disregard that. We'll keep going. We'll get to Jairus' house. We'll do the thing which I consider perhaps more important, humanly speaking. But he didn't. He did good in and out of the house. So take note of Jesus' example and pray for opportunities to do good, as small as they might be, and take hold of them. And as we take hold of them, pray. Pray that the news of God's amazingness might spread through how we live our lives for him every single day. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you once more for this incredible account of you. We thank you that we see your sovereignty over all things. We thank you that even death was no obstacle to you working out good according to your sovereign will. And we pray, O God, that we would take note, take careful note of Jesus' example to do good along the way, that we might do likewise. We might not get caught up in ourselves, perhaps our self-importance, perhaps busyness and and neglect those opportunities you give us. But may we take these opportunities and may we find ways in those opportunities to share how wonderful and amazing you are. We ask this in Christ's name.